Welcome to another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. I know we want to get into the action, but I have to ask that you help me armor us up a bit for the bumpy road ahead. Because I bring you the first hour of this show without unrelated ad nonsense as a proof of concept. And if you value it, then come over to THC Plus for the $8 a month and hear the full two-hour interviews as they were designed to be and as you would enjoy them most. Go to thehiresidechats.com or just click the link in the show notes to get started and within a minute you'll be plugging in your new Plus Show RSS feed into a hopefully decentralized podcasting 2.0 supported app. Feed the things you want to grow and starve the things that gotta go and we will reach the promised land. Think about that and enjoy the show. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Here we go again, Higher Side Chatters, back in the saddle from sunny San Diego. I'm Greg Carlwood, and so often we criticize the unsatisfactory aspects of the system, knowing exactly what it is we'd like to change, but we don't actually put any of it into action. Maybe we feel we don't have the time, or we think the things we want aren't popular enough with the masses, or that the superstructure is too absolute and our efforts are futile. Well, these are understandable concerns, but there has to be a better way than just rolling over for the big machine and grumbling about it online. What we've seen since the start of the COVID era is such a huge unraveling of normal legal processes, the mass suspension of standard rights, and so much government overreach that if not now, when? So many obvious frauds and unjustified agendas have gone unchecked for years now. And from the big weapons of mass destruction lie to the 2018 financial collapse, Without accountability, many times these things come back to bite us again. COVID has to be different. Mask mandates, forced closures of small businesses, stay-at-home orders, curfews, bans on gatherings, public and private, contact tracing, vaccine passports, travel restrictions, and the scary push to limit the rights of the unvaccinated. In some respects, what's done is done, but what are we going to do to make sure this doesn't happen again? Well, today's powerhouse guest, Dr. Pam Popper, has the answers as she's been the driving force behind the organization Make Americans Free Again. And not only have they had impressive successes in disrupting the rollout of more restrictions and further freedom erosion, but it seems the big machine has woken the beast as they have some amazing plans for building things that are even better than what's been taken away. Because as they say, the best revenge is living well. And as if she saw where things were headed, Dr. Popper is also the founder and president of Wellness Forum Health, which she started 26 years ago. A company that gives people much-needed resources to make informed medical decisions and provides them with the evidence-based health honesty that is so often lacking from the big pharma-dominated medical industry. Pam serves on the Physicians' Steering Committee and the President's Board for the Physicians' Committee for Responsible Medicine in Washington, D.C., as well as being a general public policy expert where she continually works towards changing laws that interfere with patients' right to choose their health provider and method of care. She has testified in front of legislative committees on numerous occasions and has testified twice in front of the USDA's Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee. 
She's also the author or co-author of several books, including Food Over Medicine, The Conversation That Could Save Your Life, and most recently, COVID Operation, What Happened, Why It Happened, and What's Next. Doing more before noon than most do all day, the dedicated doctor, health freedom fighter, and activist extraordinaire, Dr. Pam Popper, welcome to The Higher Side. Well, thank you for having me. And that was a, an incredible introduction. I hope I live up to it. <laughs> oh, I'm sure you will. This is a real treat. I think we've all been over the dismantling of the COVID narrative more than enough at this point. Although a lot of people seem stumped on the, well, what are we going to do about it question, but not you. And before we get into the Make Americans Free Again stuff, I hoped you could just give the people a bit more about your background as a health expert, because it seems like you were way ahead of the game in knowing some major problems with the medical system needed to be addressed, right? Yeah, I feel in a way, this may sound a little bit strange, but this is such a mess that we're in. But a couple of observations. The first thing is, I think it's a really important thing that's happening right now. And I don't think I would want to have missed it. I'm glad I'm here, you know. Mm. And I think the second thing is that to a certain extent, I've been planning for this. I've been training for it is maybe a better way to put it for my entire professional career. And the reason I say that is that when I started my company 26 years ago, what we specialize in, we carved out this niche that's really unusual. It's called informed medical decision making, looking at the risks and benefits of anything that you're thinking of doing, whether it's taking a supplement or having a $200,000 procedure and determining if it's the right thing to do based on evidence. In other words, turning people into intelligent buyers of health-related products and services. And so in the process of building this company, I've created thousands of hours of educational programming. We own a school. We train healthcare professionals how to do this. And we've worked with, I don't know, 150, 200,000 people in 33 different countries. So we've had a lot of experience looking at what goes on in medicine to determine, is this a good idea or a bad idea? And I can tell you with a great deal of assurance that about 95% of what we do in medicine is a bad idea, misuse of most resources we have. And also in this line of work, my job is to look at what's going on in medicine at any given point in time. I mean, in 2019, before this happened, I would report on some new device that the FDA approved. They approve everything, by the way. Or I would report on a new vaccination or I'd report on a new procedure, whatever. And so I've covered fake pandemics. This isn't the first one, by the way. So I've covered fake pandemics. I've covered the misbehavior of the FDA and the federal agencies that regulate health and the state agencies that regulate health. And I've fought with them in court and won a couple times, actually. And so when this happened, it was not a surprise at all. I wasn't surprised about it. I've been surprised at the extent to which they took it, but not that they would declare a fake pandemic and take advantage of the situation. So I made a video on March 10th that really sort of said what we all know is the truth now. It came out of China. They did it on purpose. And this was all to control people. And I wish I'd been wrong. Unfortunately, this is one of those times when I was right. Hmm. And so here we are. But that's like when I say I've been training for this for my whole professional career, that's what I mean. And I don't think I'm real special other than the fact that I just had a 26-year head start which if I couldn't predict it after 26 years of researching this type of stuff, then I should just sell the company and go on to something else, right? So here we are. 
Yes, that's a great summary. And I've heard you make some excellent points about the mission of Wellness Forum Health and that people tend to forget medicine is an industry and they do less homework on its recommendations than they do when they're buying a new refrigerator. Exactly. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Because I think that's a pretty important point. It is. And the reason they do it, by the way, is because doctors and the medical profession have convinced people erroneously that it's all just so complicated that they can't understand it. So they therefore need to follow instructions. And people forget that they do complicated things all the time and they figure out enough to make a smart decision. Like, I don't know how to build a house and I am not a real estate agent, but somehow I've managed to buy houses and live in them (laughs) and even make some money on a couple of them over all these years by just asking questions and checking things out. So nobody stands in the driveway with a realtor and says, I'm too stupid to pick out a house, so you'll just have to tell me where to live. And nobody shows up at a car dealership and says, I don't know anything about cars, so you better just tell me what to drive. And by the way, cars are really complicated, so I don't want to have to worry about the interest rate or the lease agreement. I mean, people are very proud of the fact that they're very diligent when they check out buying other things. And then they show up in a doctor's office and the guy says, or the gal says, you need an $80,000 surgery. And people go, okay, how about next Thursday? That's insane, right? And I think too, people are shy about questioning doctors. There's the intimidation effect. And I tell people that it's not a sign of disrespect. And I teach by analogy, by the way, so I'll probably use a lot of them during our conversation. But I've been in my current location for 16, 17 years, and I really like our landlord. Like, I'm a strange, I've had an unusual experience. Usually, it's people don't like their landlord so much, but I really do. I think this guy runs a tight ship around here, and he's done a lot of things to improve my facility if I sign lease renewals and all that. But when it was time for the last lease renewal, I did this crazy thing. I know you're going to think I'm a nut, but I took the document home and I read it before I signed it. (laughs) Now, does that mean I don't like my landlord? No. Does it mean I don't trust my landlord? No. But I signed my name to paying a million dollars. That's what my lease agreement renewal said. So before you sign something like that, you read the document for crying out loud, right? Mm -hmm. So we just need to take all those great buying skills and convert them to medicine. So the next thing people will say is, well, I don't know how to read studies, but we can teach anybody how to do it. I can teach high school students how to do it in an afternoon. It's just not all that hard. So we're trying to take the mystery out of it so that people have the ability to make good decisions and know why they're doing what they're doing instead of saying, well, you know, why do you take that supplement? My cousin sells it. Why did you decide to eat that particular diet? Well, my neighbor lost 20 pounds and so I'm doing it. And why did you have that $80,000 surgery? My doctor said I needed it. Those are not good reasons for doing any of those things and they can all be harmful. Right, right. And On the subject of medical honesty, in a lot of these decision-making situations with doctors, we aren't always given all the information or the risks and benefits. We're just given their recommendation. And I've heard you say another good analogy, which is there are consequences for lying or omitting information for a mortgage, but not the same standard for medical decisions, which are a lot more high stakes. And that's something you're also fighting to correct, right? Exactly. And I'll tell you, there are a lot of good things that are going to come out of this mess that we're in if we're smart about it. And one of them is I'm going to use this as leverage to get laws passed that will criminalize that behavior. I mean, I'm the person who's always saying we've got too many laws and too many rules and regulations. And that's in some areas we do. 
but it is unconscionable that there are no consequences for an oncologist, for example, offering a $100,000 treatment with a $15,000 copay that doesn't extend the person's life by a single day, and there's no requirement that the patient be told. And so before I leave the planet, I'm a pretty determined person, and most people will tell you I get done things I decide that I'm going to get done. Before I leave the planet, we will have laws in place that criminalize that behavior. Because if it's against the law and you can go to jail for misrepresenting the interest rate on a mortgage, you certainly should go to jail for what I just described. Yes. Cheers to that. I love it. So talk to us about the Make Americans Free Again organization, because this is really exciting stuff to me. How did it get started and how has it grown since its inception? Well, it's growing like wildfire now for a reason. I'll tell you in a few minutes here. But so when this happened last year, I waited a while to see how things unfolded. And I'll just tell you, my process of doing things is different than a lot of people. And even today, different than a lot of what's going on. There's an awful lot of, and I I have a term for it. I call it pants on fire. All right. (laughs) So people pants on fire, hysterical, running around, waving their arms in the air. We have to do something. Even if it's wrong, we just have to do something. So hire a lawyer, file a lawsuit. Let's go downtown and scream and holler and jump up and down and tell these people what for and we'll chase the school board out of the building. And, you know, a lot of theatrical running around, not getting anything done, by the way, but it might make somebody feel a little bit better for the next 15 minutes. I didn't do that. I put out videos every day. I started to talk about what was going on and tell people the truth about it. But I waited until July to actually make a move. And it was pretty well thought out. And part of it was I wanted to spend some time reflecting on how medical tyranny could have developed into this. In other words, it's been going on for decades. And medical tyranny, by the way, is you have to get a vaccine before you can work at the hospital, or a psychiatrist says to a parent, five-year-old's misbehaving, and if you don't give him Risperdal, I'm going to call Child Protective Services because children should be drugged. I mean, the partnership, an unholy partnership between medicine and drug companies and government has been escalating for a long time. All right. So what have people been doing, myself included, for the last 50 years, me for 26 of it, that got us to the place where it got worse instead of better? And this list of things I'm going to tell you about, people are still doing, as you will probably recognize. So people signed petitions and declarations. Well, the Great Barrington Declaration had a half a million signatures, and I didn't see it set anybody free. You notice any government officials saying, well, now we've got a half a million signatures. Go free and take off the masks. Not so much. (laughs) And then they go protest. Well, protests are social events. But, you know, the Germans had a million people in the streets of Berlin, and then they all went home and complied, and nothing changed. I mean, it got worse in Germany, not better. And I'm not saying protests make things worse, but protests don't solve this problem. And then people have this idea, I'll call my elected officials. Why bother? Your elected officials are the criminals that are doing this to you, right? And I've asked people, I've been on probably 300 of these kinds of programs, and I've asked people to show me one legislature last year that solved any problems related to COVID for the people who live in their state. Nobody can think of any. And even in Florida and South Dakota, it was the governors who issued orders that saved people from this, not the legislatures. They've been useless. All right, so calling your state representative, waste of time. Going in there and talking to them, waste of time. Writing them emails, waste of time. They never even see the emails. I've been in their offices when you talk about email, and they don't even read them. 
they'll ask their staff person, you know, we're getting any emails? Yeah, we're getting some. That doesn't mean anything. And then people, you know, have this idea that they're going to prepare expert witnesses and scientific presentations. Well, that doesn't change anything. Have you noticed any of the criminals running this operation changing their mind after they look at evidence? No. I haven't, right? So you have to stop doing that. You have to say, listen, it's better to do nothing than expend your energy and your resources on stuff that doesn't work, because at least when you do nothing, you can think and then you can come up with something that might work. So I thought, OK, here's our problem. We don't have any power to change it because we've never amassed the type of numbers that it takes to change it. That's problem number one. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. The second thing is we have to start filing lawsuits, but we're going to have to be smart about it because there was a lot of stupidity going on, still going on today. And it's pants on fire. Let's go file a lawsuit. Even if it's been done a thousand times and failed, you know, we're not going to take the time to read anything and figure that out. We're just going to file another lawsuit because our pants are on fire. You know, that hysteria that I'm talking about is still going on today. It drives me crazy. So I looked at probably a couple thousand of these lawsuits and they all shared the same characteristic pretty much. They're filing a lawsuit saying our constitutional rights have been violated. True story. That's accurate. But the government would show up and make a very interesting defense. Oh, we know, but we have no choice but to do it because there's an emergency. Well, you'd think after the first thousand lawsuits, people would stop making the claim, but we have about 5,000 of them now. Same claim. All right. And they're being filed every day. So I looked at that and I thought, the problem is there is no emergency. Why isn't anybody filing lawsuits claiming there's no emergency? Government officials know it and they're committing fraud. That would scare them a whole lot more than you're violating my rights because they don't care about that. They intended to do it. So I thought, I got to find a lawyer who we can work with. And then we're going to have to file lawsuits to gain our freedoms back. We're going to have to make these people pay for what they did so others won't be inspired to do it again later. And so as this whole thing started to, you know, I rolled around in my mind, it looked like what we needed was about 80 million people and $100 million to solve this problem. And I'm not kidding. It's probably more money than that now that I know more about what's going on. So how are you going to get 80 million people? And I'll tell you what we'll do with the 80 million in a minute. Raise $100 million. Well, you have to start gathering people together. So I've always thought leading by example is the thing to do. So I had a meeting in my office last July on a Thursday night. There were five people there and three of them worked for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the other two were guests. That's a pretty modest start to this whole thing, right? And that's just where it started. That's why we call them Thursday groups. I mean, a lot of them meet on Sunday or Friday and that's fine too. But Thursday groups is where that term came from. And it just grew from there. And we found a lawyer, Tom Renz. A lot of people know who he is by now. And he had the same idea. Like he'd been reading all these lawsuits and had the exact same idea that we could never win based on violating our rights. It would be challenging the emergency. So everybody thinks differently. I kind of think God's helping me here. So God sent me Tom or Tom. I got sent to Tom. I don't know how that happened, but here we are. And then we started raising money. And then it's spread outside of Ohio, went all over Ohio, spread outside of Ohio, and, and it just grew from there. So that's how it started. And then some other interesting things came up. And I want to tell you about what we're going to do with 80 million people and how we can leverage that. But I've been talking for a long time, so I should probably be quiet for a minute and let you talk. <laughs> well, that is a really great summary. And what I like about going through the website is you encourage people to start their own Thursday meetings, of course, and you help them with the planning and the agenda to make sure it's not wasted time. That's something I definitely wanted to highlight here is the call to action and how the organization helps assist people in these meetings and how they're structured so that people 
kind of, if they're thinking about starting one or wanting to go to one, they know what to expect. Could you talk to us about that a little bit? Yeah, exactly. And it goes to the operation being disciplined. Okay. That's a word that we need to bring back into fashion in the United States, in my opinion. Discipline. Be great if we started it in schools, although the, right now we got to get kids out of school. We can talk about that too. Hmm. But we have to be disciplined about it. And so I'll tell you how these groups developed a little bit. Not only did we start congregating, but pretty soon it became apparent that it was important that people congregate with other people of like mind and make new friends because a lot of us have lost friends and associates and all that. So that became something that was valuable about the meeting. Then we started rescuing local small businesses, which we're still doing. With those of us who can spend money, or even if you can just buy $8 lunch once a week, we're helping our local businesses get back on their feet. And that's important because the government has no plan for small business other than to destroy it. We have to be the counter to that. And then we started scheduling fundraisers, and that became our social life. And it was kind of fun because they were all illegal, right? And now we're working on getting kids out of school and, and that sort of thing. So here's my point. The first thing is, if you do this right, and this is why we have such detailed instruction, and I do a conference call every week to help people get started, and I hired somebody to be a full-time group coordinator to work with our groups. And if you do this right, the first thing is, instead of failing all the time, because remember when I listed all those strategies that don't work? Well, if you engage in them, you fail and you fail and you fail and you fail. It becomes demoralizing. And so people just drop out and say nothing works, and then you have to go get new people. But if you start helping people succeed, then this becomes fun and they stick around and they bring friends and you start to win. Winning is fun. Losing is not fun. The second thing is, so we're very disciplined about how you run the meetings and what we're allowed to talk about and that kind of thing. So a good example of how you can take a group of 100 people and reduce it down to five, which is the opposite of what you want to do, is you start talking about gun rights and election fraud and politicians, because those are things that people disagree about. But when you say, listen, our rights are being violated and we're going to take them back through the courts. Everybody says, I want that. Yeah. I want freedom from medical tyranny. I want to decide what I do with my own body and my minor kids. Okay, we all agree about that. Saving small businesses. Everybody likes that. Helping children not have to wear masks and stuff in school. Everybody likes that. Okay, so everybody's nodding their head yes. So we don't want people contaminating the groups by saying, let's have so-and-so come talk to us. He's running for governor. Well, half the people love so-and-so, the other half the people don't. So now you're starting to have all this dissension, you don't need it. And in every group in which that kind of garbage has gone on, they've ended up just torching themselves. And so we call it pure matha. We're real disciplined about it. We discipline groups or get rid of them if they won't adhere to it. They should just start a different kind of group. It's not us, right? This way, everybody has a great time. We are productive and we win, okay? And we don't engage in the failed strategies. So people write to me and they'll say, you need to contact your legislators and get your group, you know, going downtown to the state house. And first I yawn. And then I think about, am I going to spend any time on this? And if I have half an inkling to do it, then I go on my deck and lay in the sun and eat chocolate or something. It's a better investment of my time than calling these idiots who aren't going to do anything for us anyway. So we stick with winning strategies and we're very disciplined about how we run our groups. And that's why we have all those resources there. Mm. Well said. Yes, momentum is motivating, a very important factor in getting anything grassroots going and obviously discipline as well. And let's talk about Ohio, because I've heard you say Ohio is a model state for this situation. And let us know why. And also that 
initial challenging of the emergency declaration and how it's been scaling up? Yeah. So first of all, people say, well, your strategy won't work because the courts are corrupt. Well, some of them are, but they all aren't. And I'll come back to that because that was a strategic decision too. But in any case, you can win when you file. All right. So here's what we know about Ohio. And some of Fauci's emails, there have been several Fauci email dumps. And one of them goes back to January of last year. And they were talking about Mike DeWine, our little emperor here. And I'm the one who coined the term emperors and empresses. They all use it now, but because that's really what they appointed themselves as, right? So anyway, why would Ohio be the model state? Why were they talking to Mike DeWine? Well, Mike DeWine at the time was a popular governor in a conservative Republican state. So he would play well on all the news channels. All right, Fox would have him, of course, but he'd also be great for MSNBC because here would be a popular Republican governor doing all this draconian stuff. So if you go back and you look at the timelines, and it's easy enough to confirm this, we were the first to lock down. We were the first to close schools. We were the first to close restaurants and bars. We were the first to start canceling major events. First to have a curfew. First to have a mask mandate that was universal. And first to have a vaccine lottery. So everybody, you've got all of the emperors and empresses that are torturing the people listening to this, their inspiration came from our little criminal, okay? With that in mind, we knew that there was going to be a second lockdown. We even knew the date for it last year. We have some pretty good inside intelligence. And let me tell you what happened on August 31st was a very interesting day because over the summertime, as our little emperor became more and more popular, like he was the toast of all the Sunday shows and everybody's telling him what a great job he's doing to protect our safety and all that kind of stuff. He escalated. And on August 31st, he actually announced, along with the head of the Department of Health, that they were setting up quarantine camps all over Ohio. He ordered every college and university to set aside space for it. And they were going to start locking people up. And he was so full of himself that he actually disclosed that the federal government was going to reimburse him on a per diem basis for every person he locked up. So it was financially incentivized. And I think people were pretty freaked out about it. So that was at two o'clock on August 31st. At 8.30 that night, Tom Renz hit send on the lawsuit. And then everything changed. We have never heard since that date anything about quarantine camps. The lockdown the second time around, it, every other state, not us, all right? He put a curfew in place from 10 to 5. So we sent people driving all over the state and we told them, go from 10 to 5, we want you out driving. And then we want you to go into police stations and honk your horns and whole nine yards. We couldn't get anybody arrested for violating the curfew. And it didn't take long for people to figure it out. So it was useless. If you went out at 10 o'clock at night or 1 o'clock in the morning, it was just like there was no curfew. Then he came out and he said, well, if any kind of business establishment has people without masks two times, then we're going to shut you down for 24 hours. So we had a statewide effort to send unmasked people into all kinds of establishments to try to get them shut down. Couldn't do it. The one time that he said he wanted to go to court over violation from a restaurant that never social distanced or no plexiglass masks, whatever, they didn't show up and the lawsuit was won by default. So we saw that just filing made a difference. And in fact, he set everybody free. He had started saying he was going to lock everything down for the summer in terms of canceling events like the Ohio State Fair is virtual, which is laughable. All the downtown stuff canceled. And then just with no notice, somewhat like Cuomo in New York for the same reason we filed there too. He just comes out one day and says, go free. We're done. No emergency. 
And that was because he was due in court with us two days later and he didn't want to deal with it. So anyway, you can win by filing. And since that time, we filed more lawsuits and they all go out the emergency in one way or another. But we have litigation in Maine, New Mexico, Ohio, Kentucky, Alaska, Hawaii. We're getting ready to file something in Michigan and in Texas. And stay tuned because this is going to be a big blockbuster. And we're peripherally involved in that Alabama litigation in terms of financial support. And that's what's going on. And that's the power of just having the lawsuits filed. And we're at the place right now where behavior changes as soon as we file. They know who we are and they know that it's trouble. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. A little pushback goes a long way. It's like this whole thing started as two weeks to flatten the curve and people just keep listening and it boggles the mind because under normal circumstances, we all kind of agree, even across the political spectrum, that the general government is pretty incompetent. And after a year and a half of the same policies that were supposed to only take two weeks and just constantly pushing it further down the road, you would think eventually people would get fed up, but they just don't seem to. Well, I think they're getting fed up. I think that they don't know what to do. I mean, the problem is so much energy, and I can't really do anything about it. I just have to wait for people to come our way, but they certainly are now about the school issue. But the first thing is, it's easier to do the stuff that doesn't work. I'm asking people to start a group, and you have to go talk to somebody, invite them in. You've got to organize a small business rescue. Everybody has to work. Well, one of the reasons for that is, again, going back to failed strategies. People put their name in a database, and their email address, and send $25 or $2,500, depending on what they can. Then they wait for the people who are doing or organizing to report the happy news that they solved the problem for everybody. <laughs> well, that's a lovely thing, but it doesn't work, right? So let's face it. My message about you have to join me in work is not anywhere near as much fun as petitions and protests, right? So I think there are a lot of people who are pushing back. The key is we've got to gradually gather them and get them marching in the right direction where they can actually have some success. Mm -hmm. Yes. And you mentioned Maine, Kentucky and New Mexico and Alabama and Alaska. Anything in California yet? Seems like one of the easiest targets, actually. You know, what's interesting is that some of the worst states were some of the last to start contacting us. And it's almost like they had to just wear themselves out. And hope springs eternal. You know, so you got this guy in the California legislature who's introduced, I don't know how many dozen resolutions, and he's a well-meaning guy. He just can't get anything done because the legislature has no power. At least the people who want to end this have no power in California. So we're finally starting to see groups form out there, mainly because people have worn themselves out. And I'm, I'm serious. It's the, And I kind of knew this going in that we were just going to have to outlast everybody and we were going to have to demonstrate that we could be successful. And eventually we would be offering programs you have to be a member to participate in. And people are saying, OK, I'm going to do it then. And that's what's going on with our getting kids out of school program. Mm -hmm. And with these early states that kind of followed along with Ohio, they tended to file the same challenge of the emergency declaration. But I've heard you talk about this process kind of being tweaked for efficiency and really what was inspirational is your group is now building its own national legal team dedicated to health freedom, like not just a temporary thing, but something more permanent. Well, it's that. And it's also, again, being smart and not busy, being effective instead of just being busy. So 
instead of pants on fire, let's just flail about and file something because wouldn't it feel good for 19 seconds if we did? You know, we're going through a very careful vetting process when a new attorney shows up to figure out if it's somebody that fits in with our team. Tom has a lot to say about that, obviously, because he's directing it. And so we're building a national law firm, one attorney at a time. And every time we add these marvelously talented lawyers, every time we add one, the team gets bigger and they get used to working with each other and everything becomes more efficient. And then you can take on more different kinds of cases. And so, again, getting away from this hysteria. It's exhausting to watch. I can't imagine what it must feel like to engage in it. This hysteria and saying, look, the other side has an unlimited amount of money. That's the first thing. We are much more limited, so we're going to have to be more strategic. But the other side is incredibly strategic with all that money that they spend, you know? And so pants on fire, screaming and hollering, is that a response to a really well-planned strategic psyop like this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's just great to hear that finally the people who are aligned in their goals are actually talking to each other and know each other. So we really can't get lost, like we can't get left out again, because now these people know each other and they know how to fight the good fight. And when it comes to the MAFA organization, you have a manifesto with four stated goals from short term to long term. Obviously, we've hit on several of them, but... They're very specific and focused. And just so people can get an idea of the full scope, walk people through these four action items. Yeah. So the things that we're doing right now, litigation and funding litigation is just goes on and on. We won't end for a long time. And one thing I'll say about this, because it comes up all the time when I do conference calls, is people will say, well, the courts are corrupt. But remember, we just need one judge who says discovery starts tomorrow, and we actually have that right now because we don't need to depose Mr. Fauci 30 times. One time for a couple of days, we got what we need, right? We don't need the CDC to deliver documents to 62 locations. One document dump, because again, the strategic building the law firm, all the lawyers working together, they all benefit with all of their cases from discovery. And this has been used successfully before. This would be a tangent we don't need to go off on, but you know the Sackler family that owns Purdue Pharma, the company that makes OxyContin. The Sacklers have participated in by the illegal marketing of their drugs, because what they did was flat illegal. They've killed hundreds of thousands of Americans, and what brought them down was this idea of file lawsuits upon lawsuits upon lawsuits and find one judge that will give you what you want. It happened to be Dan Polster in Ohio. So that's the first thing, and it's important. We don't want to lose sight of it. And we'll be in litigation till the day I die. I'm 64 years old. I'm planning to live to be at least 100. And on my last day of life, I said, help me God, I'm going to be in court in the morning, come to work in the afternoon, eat dinner and go to bed and just not get up the next morning. So that's one thing. The second thing is rebuilding our communities. Again, we have got to support our local businesses. Walmart did fine during this whole thing. The local flower shops starved to death because they were deemed non-essential. So I make it a point to buy stuff and our people make it a point. We got to a place when things were really terrible where we would go into a store. We could buy everything that wasn't nailed to the floor and the wall in the afternoon in one afternoon and put people back on their feet. Okay, so that's you need that grassroots commitment, right? The third thing is we've got to protect our children. And I made another prediction that I wish I hadn't been right about. When school was out this year and everybody's thinking about next year and the school systems are saying, oh, you know, we're not going to make kids mask. And 
all that sort of thing. Well, I said it's a false flag. They're getting everybody to relax, and then they're going to start a whole new round of COVID nonsense. So I broke the story to our people, to our my listeners and viewers a few weeks ago about this American Rescue Plan, one of those ginormous bills passed in Washington where they're printing money. It allocates $122 billion to the schools, and one of the things the money is supposed to be used for is adherence to CDC guidelines that include things like testing and quarantines and vaccinations and all the masks and all that crap. The American Academy of Pediatrics have recommended masking all kids over the age of two. So the bottom line is that school is promising now to be the dystopian nightmare. It's a place we used to call school. Right now, it's a way to ruin an entire generation of kids. So the parents, it isn't, you can't just go scream at the school board. It's again, back to this. They've made up their mind and they're not going to send all this money they got back to the government and say, well, we'll do what the parents want. That's not going to happen. So people are in droves. We're working night and day to have a program to help every parent who decides they want to take their kids out of these god-awful places to make sure that they have the right resources, alternative education, parents who've done it to talk to at any time, et cetera. And we're launching that next week. And this is going to be huge. Our goal is to get a million children out of these god-awful places within the next few months. Hmm. And then another thing that we are going to need to do and this is going to happen simultaneously just as soon as I get the school thing launched, is to work on this health professional censorship issue. Here's the lay of the land in terms of the way health care is delivered in this country. If you have a, a license to practice something, they can threaten to take it away if you don't do what you're told. In other words, that's what they do. If you write vaccine exemptions in California, if you write more than five in a year, then they come and investigate you and take your license away. and that sort of thing. So licensed health professionals are limited. People lost their jobs because they were recommending hydroxychloroquine. and all. So there's a party line that you have to stick to if you're licensed. We have the COVID Consumer Protection Act, which was passed by Congress. So if you disagree with the federal government and state publicly a contrary opinion about COVID, they can fine you as much as $8 million. That would bankrupt most people, I think. And then if you're not licensed, like you're a naturopath or an herbalist, they can prosecute you for unlicensed practice. And actually, it's prison time that can be involved in that in some states. And then, of course, all the deplatforming. So we have to do something about that. And we have a program for health professionals that we've launched as well. I guess that's enough, right, to, <laughs> to do. But those are the things that we're paying attention to right now. And then I mentioned this a couple times. Once we have like 80 million people being able to throw our weight around. So I want to go back to last summer in Ohio and tell you what I mean by that. So none of these legislatures, nobody's been ever able to tell me about one that passed a law that helped the people. They let the governors and the states do this god awful stuff to people without any inhibition. So let's go back last year and let's assume that I had started this organization years ago and we had 80 million people. So I would have sorted out the Ohio names by legislative district. And there's always a loudmouth person like me in every state who relishes the idea of talking to these people, these elected officials. And I would have sat down with them and here would be a sample conversation. I want to introduce you to our new program called Citizens in Charge. And you see this palette of boxes that I wheeled into your office. Let me tell you what's in there. It is lists of registered voters in your district. There are 19,571 of them. Who want the governor impeached? And I'm here to speak for them. So it's an election year. Remember, 2020 was. And if you don't impeach the governor, we're getting rid of you. 
we don't really care. Somebody's going, and I don't actually care if it's you or the governor, but we're going to start getting our way around here. So it's really short meeting. Don't need a whole lot of discussion. There's no reasoning about it. I don't need to produce any science. This is just what we want. All right. <laughs> and if we had done that, we would have gotten this little criminal impeached and out of here. And that would have changed everything because this is the model state. If we got rid of them, other legislators might have been inclined to do it or their own Make American Spree Again representatives could have been having the same conversations with their legislators because the only thing they care about is being there. Well, that's the one thing you can take away from them, right? That's when I say we don't have the power to do anything about this stuff, how we ended up in this mess. You know, that's what I'm talking about. We've got to get that kind of leverage if we're going to solve this problem in the long term. And by the way, to that point, I remember watching with abject horror one night a hearing in California in which the discussion was going on about mandating vaccines for school. Fifty-three people went up to the microphone and said they were for this bill. 1,496 against one at a time, and they voted for it. Huh. What does that tell you? It tells you that 1,496 people isn't enough to take one of those terrible people out of office, right? You have to have huge numbers, and that's the long term. That's how we keep this from happening again. They make one more move like this, it's over with in six weeks. Oh, wow. And you mentioned schooling a little bit. Obviously, that's a huge component here. But when it comes to the damage done by COVID policies in schools and to school children, what should people know? For people who don't have children or just aren't really paying much attention to what's going on in the schools, if it's not obvious, what has some of the damage been? I think the biggest damage has been children have been taught to think that they could kill their grandma. I'm dangerous. The other children are dangerous. The teacher's dangerous. The environment's dangerous. And teaching that kind of fear to children is unconscionable. It's unconscionable. And it's very difficult to get over. It's like a form of PTSD if a child's kidnapped or beaten or raped or something of that nature. They can spend a lifetime getting over it. And to give you an idea what those consequences look like, and then I want to talk about something that happened in Iowa that I think is really significant. Layla Sentner is one of our benefactors, and she owns this wonderful place in Miami called the Sentner Academy. It's a private school, and in addition to academics, they teach them life skills, and they work on emotional intellect and turning them into productive citizens, right? And she never did any of this stuff at her school. No masks, no vaccine requirements, no nothing. Okay, so last spring, you know, she's always said, if you're thinking of sending your child to Sentner Academy... The best way to figure out if it's a fit is to let the child spend a day in the type of classroom he or she would be attending. So this eight-year-old child, seven or eight years old, comes to a dropped off by his parents and he's put in the classroom. And of course, these kids are unmasked and they're all doing what kids that age are supposed to do. They're working in small groups and they're learning things and building things, you know, if you've ever looked at a bunch of kids and the way they learn how to do stuff, right? So... He's wearing his mask and he sees these unmasked children and he had a complete meltdown. His parents had to come and pick him up. So when you are in the second or third grade and the appearance of unmasked children engaging in normal activities causes you such distress that you have to be picked up and taken home, that gives you an idea of how damaged these children are. 
And as for, I was talking about this at the beginning of the summer, because when the schools started saying, well, we're not going to force kids to wear masks, it was like, well, we'll give people exemptions, you know, if you don't have to. Well, here's what happens when they do that. So there was a video that went viral. It's one of the saddest things I've ever seen. It's so despicable, and it just goes to what criminals these people are who are behind this, including the medical professionals involved in it. Five-year-old child in Iowa had four staph infections. The parents tried every type of mask that they could. And finally, the pediatrician said, you can't put a mask on her anymore. She's going to die of these infections. So they gave her an exemption. This kid's in like kindergarten. She's five. So she goes to school the first day. She's unmasked. The kids who are masked and the adults bully her. All right. And it was so bad that the principal had to put the child in isolation in a room by herself where she spent the day. So can you imagine being five years old? You're in a room by yourself all day long. You eat lunch by yourself. Nobody's there. That'd be pretty terrifying. Okay. They put her back in the classroom in a plexiglass box. She can't get out and they can't get in. And she became so hysterical. Her parents had to pick her up. She's in therapy. Okay. This is what the schools are willing to do. What they're basically saying is that we will do. Anything the CDC or some government official tells us to do, including the outright harm of children, get your kids the hell out of those places, people who are listening to this. You cannot allow a child to go there. Man, yes, it's uh, definitely terrible. It's something that hasn't been on probably a lot of people's radar unless they have kids themselves. But as I've heard more about the damage to children, little things that maybe weren't obvious at first have cropped up and, and they seem pretty important. I mean, one example would be I've heard from childhood development experts that kids that are four, five, six, seven years old, young kids like this, they are subconsciously observing people around them and picking up on all kinds of things that are important for life such as just proper ways to speak, and they're subconsciously looking at tongue and teeth placement with the people around them. And when your face is covered up, obviously you can't see that. And that's something that I never would have known if I hadn't heard from these people, but it's causing speech impediments and just all kinds of problems that might take years and years to reverse after just one year of this kind of stuff. And also kids dropping masks. I mean, you tell little kids that they're going to be punished if they take the mask off their face. Well, kids are doing kid things and they might drop it in a toilet or drop it on the floor, put it right back on their face because they're just scared of getting in trouble. And when some of these masks have been looked at, they're covered in bacteria far worse than COVID, meningitis causing bacteria, all kinds of stuff. And that's a huge oversight when, again, as you say, this the sky is falling fear and panic, like we're missing the forest for the trees in many different ways. Yeah. And going back to what you said about being face covered all the time, one of the ways that kids gain some emotional intelligence is they learn to read facial expressions. So they, right. they can tell if they upset a child. Like let's say a kid says something really offensive to another child. They can tell by the expression on the child's face that they offended that person. That's how you learn when you're a little kid, right? And also they can tell when something's going on, it makes somebody happy. And this is how they start to make sense out of the world around them. So the lack of ability to see facial expressions really is incredibly damaging to children. And the issue of sanitation and masks, I never 
we forbade masks in here for employees. I mean, that wasn't hard to do. Nobody here wanted to wear a mask. But one of the reasons why I did it was not just in defiance of the orders. That was part of it. But the other thing is that if you're in this building, for example, and I say you have to wear a mask, okay, so you have to take the mask off to drink water. I'd have to take the mask off to do this interview or I'd be mumbling and you couldn't understand me. And then you have to take the mask off to talk on the phone and when it's time to eat lunch. And then what are you doing in between the times when you're touching this mask? Well, I'm picking up a pencil that probably 15 people have used besides me. And I'm going back to the file room and I'm opening a file drawer, right? So what are you picking up from all that stuff? You're picking up, I don't know, germs. I'm, I'm not afraid of germs. But the bottom line is that you're touching all kinds of things. Then you touch the mask and you put it back on. So even if it doesn't fall on the floor, even if it doesn't fall on the toilet or the parking lot or whatever, you're still introducing bacteria. And the one thing that health professionals tell people every year during cold and flu season, keep your hands away from your face, right? And it's almost like everything that we would normally tell people they said the opposite, and it appears to be a deliberate intent to make people sicker, not better. Because having your hands around your face all day long during flu season is nuts. Mm. Yes, great points. And I have some more questions about homeschooling. But while we're still in this first hour, I really want to ask you about the next pandemic and the justification for all this, because nobody likes it. But many people have been convinced that it is a necessary evil. And on this show, we've had plenty of guests in the last year talking about mask science, 99% survival rates, PCR test inaccuracy, and assumed infection for anyone with symptoms or anyone who died with the sniffles, all that kind of stuff. I think if you were paying enough attention, you could calm yourself down with the data pretty easily, pretty early on. But a lot of the points people make are kind of COVID specific. And I want to ask you about this paradigm of health and pandemics in general, because I worry that this could happen again. And it might be with something that sounds a lot more scary than COVID. What would you say to people about the whole concept of virology, viruses, pandemics, and their health to mentally armor them up against future narratives that might be presented as even deadlier? Yeah. And I think, you know, there's a couple of points you bring up that I think are real important. And one is that public health has damaged itself so much that one of the issues will be that if there is ever something that we really should be concerned about, like we should actually stay inside and not go out. I would say a good two thirds of the country is going to yawn and go on about their business. And that could be disastrous. But that's not likely because actually viruses have been around forever. In fact, 34% of our DNA is viral. So if you think you're going to avoid them somehow, it's impossible. Staying home doesn't help. In fact, uh, one of the funniest things that happened was when Andrew Cuomo, during one of his uh, press conferences, was showing a chart that showed that 66% of the hospitalized people were people sheltering at home, not going anywhere. And then at the top, the sign said, stay safe, stay home. The irony, just you can't help but notice that, right? But viruses have been around forever. And what you want is exposure. In other words, the faster it circulates and goes through the community, the faster you reach herd immunity. Most people won't even have symptoms. Some people have mild symptoms, some people more severe, and some people will die. And generally, it's the very old and vulnerable who die every year. And I don't want this to sound callous, because I think anybody who dies is a tragedy for some people, right? 
there's somebody's mother or grandmother or best friend or neighbor. But if you're 90 years old and you're in bed, you cannot get out of bed and you're taking eight medications, something is going to take you out this year. You're probably not going to see 2022, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the natural progression of a virus. And we have new ones coming out all the time. And something I want to say, too, to put people's minds at rest about this thing is that they hear about all these variants, right? Well, they're naming a variant. I think they're just making it up. But the RNA viruses mutate. And in July of last year, there had been posted 343,000 plus mutations. That was not a mistake, 343,000. <laughs> they mutate like crazy. In fact, this thing has mutated 100 times since we started talking. <laughs> and that's why vaccines don't work for RNA viruses. The scientists have never been able to come up with a vaccine that works for an RNA virus because of its rapid mutation rate. So people might say, well, if it mutates that fast, doesn't that make it dangerous? No, because your immune system will attack things that look similar. Like there was one study that was done in, I think it was in Oxford last year, and they determined that like a third of the population had immunity to SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. And it wasn't because they had already been exposed. It's that they had had coronaviruses before, and there was enough resemblance, even with the spike protein, for their memory T cells to keep them from getting sick. So again, they've just done the opposite of what they should have done. So all this to get to the point, you know, I have people that are panicked. They've driven people to a state of panic. I talked to somebody like this yesterday. And I waited until the pants on fire screaming stopped because you have to sometimes let that happen. And I said, let me ask you a question because she's all worried about the coming flu season. I said, remember 2019? What were you doing in July of 2019 pertaining to the flu? She says, nothing. I said, did you think about the flu? No. Why not? Just looked at me. Well, it's the flu. Okay. This is the flu. There will be another flu and another one and another one and another one. Happens every year. Been happening since you were born. Okay, so it is only the insane, crazy lying that has made you think that you should be running around like a crazy person thinking about filling your medicine cabinet in July of this year because something bad's going to happen in November. That's insane thinking. And I wasn't saying it to be insulting to her as much as I was to point out that it's insane thinking that has been ginned up by criminals who want you to be this way. Mm. Well said. And I also wanted to drill down a bit more on the long-term plan of setting up an alternative healthcare system. The website says, with a base of tens of millions of members, we can start our own healthcare system with features like insurance plans that cover services that promote health. Networks of practitioners trained to collaborate with patients and in making informed decisions and treatment protocols that address the cause of disease. Obviously, this is further down the road, but it is quite inspiring and exciting. Can you elaborate on that larger vision laid out here? Yeah, I think the key is going back to something I said before, which is that I think the part of healthcare that we're stuck with is the hospital system, because I don't think we have any hope of being able to duplicate that. It's the most expensive part. But as I said before, that's the part that everybody doesn't necessarily have to interact with and can interact with safely if well-trained. 
But I think we can take all the unhappy doctors, nurses, nurse practitioners, et cetera, out of these institutions and set them back up in locally, local clinics and go back to the way medicine used to be practiced with relationships between the practitioners and people. And we can do it at, at a fraction of the cost. By the way, one of the reasons why the health professions don't want this informed consent and all this stuff that we're talking about and why they don't want a law, you would think that a profession would say, listen, I want my profession to operate honestly, so I'd be all for a law that makes it criminal to not properly inform people. Here's why they don't want that, because research has clearly shown that this reduces medical utilization, okay? So they absolutely do not want anything like that. So if it reduces medical utilization by about how much? About two-thirds. And that's why I could afford to do this, because the cost of delivering the actual types of services that are needed and not getting people into the medical mill, I mean, they create revenue by doing bad things. We won't do that. And mm -hmm. I don't think you have to. I think you can make money doing the right thing. Yeah, it's just another great example of the application of that car industry analogy. I just think that's so amazing. And as we're starting to wrap this thing up, give people some parting words of encouragement when it comes to starting their own MAFA meetings, how they can be most effective, and some of the initiatives and events that you guys plan on rolling out next. Yeah, so our big thing right now is going to be this thing with schools. We have to pay attention to this. We don't have any choice. If we don't save these children, nobody's going to save them if we don't save them. Okay, so we're going to have to do it. So that's the big next thing. But here's what I suggest that people do. I hold a conference call every Thursday at noon Eastern time. It's free. All right. Membership at Make Americans Free Again. It's free. All right. So all you have to do is send me an email at pampopper at msn.com. Tell me you want to participate in this conference call. We'll get all the information to you. And that's it. You know, I can show you what to do, how to get started. We have a meeting support section of our website and, and that'll provide you with more information. We have a coordinator in our office who will work with you. I mean, anything you need to make this work, we're going to help you that way. Okay. So that's the first thing. The second thing is I put out a newsletter every Monday and videos Tuesday through Friday, and that's free. You can subscribe to that. And that's how you can learn more about all these things that we're talking about here so that you'd be in a position to know what's going on and know what kinds of actions you can take and when it's time to take action. We do tell people you have to work. In other words, you cannot, well, you can. You can sit back passively and you can wait for us to solve your problem. But we, as I said, we need to learn from what we've had happen in the past, which that hasn't worked out so well. So let's get busy, right? And solve this problem together. And we can, we can do it. So Pam Popper at msn.com. Send me an email. Let me help you get started and join our effort. It'll be the best decision you ever made. It'll be the most fun you ever had. And we can beat these guys if we all put our thoughts together on it, you know? <laughs> I like it. Inspiring. And the website is great with a lot of detailed resources, but I don't see any sort of directory where people can find and join meeting groups that have already started in their area. Did I miss something or is that by design? That's by design. You've got to start a meeting yourself. Everybody has to work. This is maybe one of the most important things I'm going to say. Everybody can't sit back and wait for us to solve the problem. You have to work with us. You know, I'm not a social director. We're not going to hire one. You're going to have to start your own meeting. And 
along that line, you know, there's some liability issues associated with sending people. Like, how would you like it if you're having a meeting in your house, you're a single female who's 40 years old, and I send some stranger to your door on a Thursday night at six? I don't think that's going to work out so well. Mm -hmm. So really, it's a good thing that we are not in a position to do this because it really forces everybody to take action and get to work. Right on. That makes sense to me. And lastly, anything to say about the offerings at Wellness Forum Health and the courses there? Seems like a wealth of information. We should make people aware of that, too. Yes, we have the biggest libraries in the world of informed decision-making tools. We offer memberships that range from a low of $99, where you get a ton of stuff. I mean, everybody can afford to access our stuff, right? Conversations with Pam, open Q&A sessions. We have rich libraries of videos, 2,000 referenced articles on everything from kidney stones to stage four cancer and so on. And so a ton of resources here. We own our own school too. So if you want to be in the healthcare business and you're not, we can help you transition to being in the healthcare business. Or if you're in the healthcare business and you're really unhappy with the way it's going for the reasons that you and I've been talking about, then consider training with us also. Awesome. Of course, the new book is COVID Operation. Lots of great information there as well. And I just got to say thanks so much. Really impressive. You are walking the walk and pushing back in so many important ways. Thanks for spending some time to talk with me about it. We have a large, passionate, and skilled audience that I hope will lend their time and talents to this cause. Take care and keep fighting the good fight. All right. Thank you so much for having me. You got it. Well, I thought that was just excellent, guys. Pam Popper, unbelievable. No other THC interview that I can think of has been as laser-focused on how to build and preserve the world we want, the networking, the effective strategies, the ineffective ones, the legal fight, the education fight, the struggle to save small business and keep the local economy alive. Man, I really loved pretty much everything Pam had to say. And she got on my radar because Dr. Christiane Northrup mentioned her several times. And I do have a pretty long list of people whose work I need to check out. And I was kind of close to overlooking Pam's work with MAFA because of that political association. I definitely try to keep my distance from MAGA or Q or just anything politically one-sided, to be honest with you. And I don't really know why Pam went with the Make Americans Free Again branding and the implication that it's related. I was going to ask about it, but once she went on her tear about staying laser-focused on the singular issue, I thought, well, that's fair enough, and nothing more really needs to be said about it. And you know, a lot of people don't love my branding either, so who am I to judge as long as we're all on the same team? Her passion and dedication are clear. It's contagious even. My wife and I thought about doing our own meeting, but because of my position, I'd probably just rather go to one. But I am plugged in with the Reopen San Diego organization. I support them. I keep an eye on what they're doing. I'm trying to support the small businesses that are being reasonable through these unreasonable times. And I really hope you guys are doing the same, at a minimum. But I certainly wouldn't mind knowing more like-minded people in San Diego. 
I thought about having a meetup for THC fans or something because getting to know more like-minded people has never felt more important and the philosophical differences between me and a lot of people I love have never been more unavoidably problematic and having a kid only exacerbates the divide on certain things. But I hope there is a good-sized response to this one. I hope people do actually start having their own meetings using Pam's guidance. You don't have to think everything about it is perfect if you think this fight is as important and necessary as I do. If you do have a meeting or take any of this with you into the real world, I would love to get a message about it on the voicemail for the next joint session. It's motivating and impactful. We've heard from one listener who happens to be in charge of a workers' union and is poised and ready to say no way if they try to enact any vaccine mandates or anything like that. And I would just love to hear how you guys are making local differences and finding the others. TheHigherSideChats.com slash voicemail. But Pam's right. Enough time has passed that I think we all know this isn't just going to blow over. We have to have some sort of line in the sand, and being in this minority position, being constantly bombarded about the vaccine, it would only be as painful as you let it be if you enjoyed the company of a dozen people who didn't care and knew where to find a dozen small local businesses and bars and restaurants that also don't care. How badly would it affect your life? Because I think there's a fair point to be made that for a lot of us, the most troubling part of this whole thing has been the destruction of our networks. Well, we can't change anyone's mind, so how long are we going to sit around and be upset about that before we get to building new networks that are a lot more resilient? I wouldn't say that a lot of us need new friends, but we certainly might need more friends. I did mention the L.A. Comedy Store requiring vaccination in the last joint session, and I've had many people send me that notice that the Comedy Store put up, and it sucks. The Comedy Store is a very unique place that I love going to, but it's not the only comedy club. I went last week to see Tim Dillon at the Irvine Improv, and it was a great experience. The seats and the food were far above anything the comedy store does. Plus, one of my local comedy clubs, the American Comedy Company, has been one of the most outspoken businesses in all of San Diego. So instead of mourning the loss of what I don't have, it's just better to find other options. If those better options are already fighting the good fight, then expect them to continue doing that. And with your backing, they'll feel even more emboldened, and they will survive. I like the framing of building networks that can't be taken apart. There will be no guessing next time if your friends really have your back or if your favorite hangout spots are going to comply. The legal framework is probably the most exciting example of that, but building back better is not just a vague platitude for Joe Biden to slur and stumble through. You know, we can do it too. Who are you going to support? What are you going to contribute? These are two real questions for a lot of us to take seriously, because this wasn't just two weeks to flatten the curve, it's more like two years to break the community. So, if you're going to have a Thursday meeting in San Diego, email me, and I'll probably be willing to attend. 
If you're in San Diego, stay tuned in to the Reopen San Diego group and their events. There are websites and groups that are cataloging the businesses that are fighting back or just fighting to stay open. And I probably shouldn't give links here because there are snitches in the world and we only need one to ruin our time. And sadly, we got to account for that. But once you find these networks and these lists of businesses working in the underground, you're in. So be savvy with your searches and ask around. But tons of great stuff today. Pam is an awesome guest. She clearly does this a lot. If you only heard the first hour and the second hour, we talked about swine flu as a test run, the latest data and numbers regarding the COVID vaccine damage, She told us about a whistleblower lawsuit affidavit claiming 44,000 deaths so far, not 11,000. And the very next day, I think I saw something from the Children's Health Defense Group. So I think there might even be more to say about that now than when we recorded. But we also did some profiling of the guilty parties and key players that Pam talks about in her book. We discussed Fauci during the AIDS situation, the consequences of just going along to get along, cancer industry testing scams, that was insightful, homeschooling facts and myths, and MAFA's small business rescue plan. So as much as you liked the first hour, you need to know there is just as much that you didn't hear in this episode and every episode. Sign up for the Higher Side Chats Plus at thehiresidechats.com. Support the mission, get more for yourself, get lifetime forum access, and your own private RSS feed. It all sounds like a win-win to me. Definitely let Pam know if you appreciate what she's doing out there. Start your own meetings, reach out if you might be interested in a local San Diego get-together, and we'll see what happens. Thanks for listening. I've done my part. Your move, architects of the agenda, soldiers of this medical tyranny, and go along to get alongers. Your fucking move. Well, they tie that yellow ribbon round the oak tree. They've worn out all the prayer in their hearts. All along thought they were rooting for the home team. As they're sent to the game and torn apart.
smoking gun.